When we were first putting Read This together, we hit on this naming convention for our episodes. Each one would reference the guest of the week and then would offer an intriguing glimpse into what they'd shared with us. A tease, maybe even something that flew in the face of what you'd expect about your favourite author. So going into this week's episode, we were kind of hoping to come up with something counterintuitive. The darkness and sorrows of Trent Dalton. Or even, Trent Dalton is secretly mean. But here's the thing. Shockingly, in person, he might be one of the most upbeat, effervescent writers I've ever met. Trent Dalton didn't become one of this country's best-selling, widely adored authors by faking who he is. The man is the opposite of a clickbaity tease. It's all there front and centre. What you see is what you get. People underestimate the value of enthusiasm. Like I say to journos, just be enthusiastic. Be the person who gets the story and do that enthusiastically. But listen to your Beatles records enthusiastically. Listen, you know, look at the bird in the sky enthusiastically. Greet your friends enthusiastically because you're fucking lucky to be here, man. You're lucky to have friends. I'm fairly confident you know who Trent Dalton is. After all, at this point, more than 1.2 million people have bought his books in Australia alone. But as a refresher, he grew up in the outer suburbs of Brisbane and established a name for himself as a journalist. Then, in 2018, he released his debut novel, Boy Swallows Universe. It's the largely autobiographical story of 12-year-old Eli Bell, who gets swept into a world of violent crime trying to save his mother from danger. It was a sensation, to put it mildly. Not only was it everywhere, but it's about to become a Netflix series. He followed it with a second novel, All Our Shimmering Skies, and then a book of non-fiction, where he sat on a street corner and interviewed strangers about their love stories, writing them up on an old typewriter. At events for that book, he'd lead audiences in a boisterous sing-along of All You Need Is Love. I know what you're thinking, the grumpy old cynic in me gets a sugar headache at the very idea, and yet somehow, it works. That's just Trent. I'm Michael Williams, and this is Read This, a show about the books we love enthusiastically and the stories behind them. Trent Dalton's new novel is called Lola in the Mirror, and it's the third, maybe final, in a loose trilogy following young people in peril on the fringes of society. And when we get the chance to sit and talk about it, I begin by sharing my first impressions of him. A few years ago, I was at the Book Industry Awards, and you won in a category, and you went to the lectern, and the energy in the room was electrifying. You oh. delivered this impassioned, heartfelt speech, and name-checked the people who mattered to you. It was generous. It was funny. It was like vintage Trent Dalton. And the audience, you could feel, were all with you. Two categories later, you win again. Up you go again. And I had thought we'd seen the pinnacle of energy and joy and generosity. No, you were just getting started. It was the entree. But here's where I want to start. In yeah. those speeches, one of the things I really remember was you were like, you know, I freaking love you. Yeah. You might be the only person I know who genuinely uses the word freaking. Like doesn't swear has modified that. And from what I know of your upbringing, from what I know of your teen years, there must have been a point at which you decided, I don't want to swear anymore. I'm going to take that out of my repertoire. I don't want to say fuck. I want to say frick. And I want that to be the one that comes out naturally and oh, instinctively. Wow. Do you remember that moment that frickin' oh. became part of your lexicon? Oh, it's such an interesting place to start a chat because 
uh, you know where it comes from, that word. I mean, my old man's like, the fucking dinner's ready, you know, and uh, and <laughs> you, f- you flip that word and it's like, I'll fucking kill you, you know. You know, I've heard people say that to my mum. You're just sort of shaving it off a bit and going, no, okay, this is for people in that room in particular, right, at those Arby Awards. It's like I'm trying to tell them really quickly that you change everything. That night is me getting up there and going, you, you people uh, that I never thought uh, I had the faintest clue that I would ever be up there doing something so powerful, like people kind of not saying that story's trash, not saying that that story is the work of a chancer from, you know, just a Queensland shitbag. And that's me just quickly saying, you know, it's like I'd love to just scream out, you know, I fucking think you're the best. But it's also me just going, I'm not that 12-year-old shitbag anymore. So I just did refine it a little bit and say, and frickin'. That's why I open there is that, you know, it's very Trent Dalton. It's generous. It's authentic. It's full-bodied. But it is also really conscious of how Mm. you're going to leave other people with your enthusiasm. Like, you're not tempering your enthusiasm at all. You're not tempering the stuff that you want to say. Yeah. But you are recognising that if you say fucking, there are people in the room for whom that's going to conjure up Violence. It's going to conjure up memories of hurt and confrontation and whatever. You're a very deliberate man, Trent Dalton, when it comes to wanting to make sure that you can deal with these hard or monstrous things in a way that leaves things better, not worse. You know, I've been a journalist for 23 years now and I lost sleep at night for the stories I wrote, mate, where I didn't leave people better. I wrote for a weekend magazine a lot and I dread Saturday morning when my articles would come out and I'd, I'd lose sleep on Friday night because I, I was terrified of the phone call where someone calls up and says, you you just ruined my life. And, mate, when I was in my 20s, I, I was really young and ambitious and I, I think I did ruin a couple of people's lives. I think I did. Like what you're saying is so beautiful, Michael, because I, I, I have worked on that. I have actively worked on that. Like I, I am actively trying to be a better human and it's a work in progress. And it's like the whole book I just wrote is all about looking at myself in the mirror and seeing failings and seeing mistakes. And, and so I think it's really beautiful that you call me a deliberate man because it's, it's true, man. It's true. You're getting, me, you're getting me really emotional. It's a deep, cool thing you're talking about. Part of what you do in Lola in the Mirror is, as you say, not just that thing of who we see when we look at ourselves in the mirror, but that question of past self and future self and oh. how much of it is predetermined, how much we can make a series of choices that allow us to become a different person. Your first book of nonfiction that came out of your social affairs journalism was called Detours, if yeah, I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the kind of underlying premise of that, that has a lot to do with the current novel, is about people who are without home, people who are kind of destitute one way or the other, and asking them to consider the moment of the detour, the moment when their life went down a track uh, that they were still trying to find a way to kind of claw claw back. Oh, Michael, that was everything. And it was an incredible journalistic exercise. That book sold 500 copies. No one read it, but um, it was a beautiful book process because the shelter that I wrote it for, it's this place called Third Space up in my home city, Brisbane. For 50 years, it's been serving 3,500 meals to the homeless every month. And I've, you know, Michael Apted, 7up style, would duck in there and do it every two years or so, just catch up. How's it going? What are you doing now? What projects are you working on? And it turned into this book detours. And, and I asked 20 regulars, just sit down 
Tell me the moment. Let's unpack that one moment that you think it was that set you on the path. And we're trying to talk about that thing that we we all sometimes, so a lot of people think it's all drugs and drink related. And drugs and drink will keep you on the street, but it's not often the thing that puts you on the street. And Mate, it often came down to moments of mental health, moments of childhood trauma, moments of acute misfortune that any one of us could face. It used to be three steps to the street. It's now two. It used to be you reached that third step and you could rely on social housing to to the social housing register. You might be on there for maybe two or three months, right? And you might jag a public house. That's the Dalton boys. The Dalton boys in the 90s. My old man, Noel, raised four boys on his own in a public housing home for less than $100. And it scares the shit out of me thinking that we would not get that home. And rightly so. We're four able-bodied teenagers and and with an able-bodied dad. It would go to a single mum and a family with disability needs. And, you know, it would go to them. And that scares me. But this Detours book was all about what is the moment. And, Michael, I swear it comes down to two emotions two human emotions that we all feel every day. It's confusion and sorrow. And the moments were really specific, like um, military tank driver, explosion, loses an eye, um, drinks to cure the pain, starts drinking too much, gets on the street, no job. Woman has a sugar addiction stemming from a childhood trauma, stems to a gambling addiction. And it's just incredible moments. You could really track back with each of these cases and realise it's people battling these emotions that you and I face every day, right? But we're just fortunate enough to not have to face them on a 24-7 daily basis. And and I just think it's really powerful to think of these huge issues, 120,000 people sleeping rough each night. I'm not trying to sound all worthy or earnest or anything, but I just, there's something to be said about remembering that we've all been there. We felt what they're feeling out there tonight. That for me is the way through because when we realize that these are just human emotions, that is at the heart of it, then we can solve it and then we can share our own compassion and kind of collectively as community wrap our arms around them. I was going to ask you about the detours for you, the moments when Mm, mm. you knew you were on that different path. You know, Mm. I know that for you there were several of them. One was meeting the woman who is now your wife and and the mother of your daughters. But another one of them was your dad's reading habits and the ways in which that gave you a license to imagine a different way. You know, this is the power of these people. You know, the power of these people that, you know, my great regret is my my old man died of emphysema, right? Each morning he'd wake up and roll 20 cigarettes and read a doorstopper. That's all he did, man. To be honest, I think he had some undiagnosed, like, you know, mental health thing. And, you know, he found it hard to stay in jobs, stay in work because of that. Incredibly beautiful man, Michael. Terrible on the piss. But he was only pissed twice a week. But every other day, he's freaking beautiful. And uh, and he's just tapping me on the shoulder and handing me Papillon or, or handing me Lord of the Rings and or um, handing my brother Steinbeck or handing us Geraldine Brooks, you know, handing us beautiful feminine voices as well and just going, nah, she's brilliant. She writes beautifully. The guy had the words fuck off like tattooed on the inside bottom of his lip and he looked like Keith Richards. But, man... He was the most well-read. He could sit with you, Michael, and, and have a great conversation about your, your shared love of books, you know? And Okay, now I'm going to get really emotional. I'm going to tell you something beautiful. I went up to my letterbox one day, and uh, this is just the heart of I was writing for the Weekend Oz Mag, and, uh, and I just opened up the letterbox, and there was a, <laughs> it was a handwritten piece of paper, and it said, um, Hey, Trent. 
you have been a revelation. Ah, you have done all the right things. So proud. <laughs> Sorry, so I can't even get it out. So proud, Dad. Like the guy wrote like Clint Eastwood speaks, and that is now like it's on my desk when I write, you know, and it's like um, it's the best fucking piece of writing I've ever seen in my life, you know, because it was just such a random thing. But what he was saying was, you listen to me, you know. You know, he's like, he's saying like, uh, you listen to everything I said. Because what he said was always like, um, he always said, I will kick your ass if you follow in my footsteps. And that's a, that's an incredibly humbling thing for a man to say to his son. And yet what he didn't know is that, man, I, emotionally and character wise, like I'm still trying to follow in his footsteps. And so that's what that note reminds me of, you know. When we return, Trent traces the path of his life from miserable 15-year-old to the writer he's become today and shares how raising daughters has helped shape the lead character in his new book, Lola in the Mirror. We'll be right back. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash newsletters. This year, The Saturday Paper celebrates 10 years as Australia's leading independent newspaper. In that time, it's built a peerless reputation for quality journalism, for telling stories that are ignored elsewhere. It's the essential account of the week in politics, culture and news. When you read the Saturday paper, you don't need to read anything else. Subscribe today from just $2.10 per week. Visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash subscribe. The Saturday paper, the whole story. The three acts of the life of Trent Dalton so far. You know, the first act growing up in that environment, yeah. kind of being witness to that kind of violence, that kind mm. of trauma. Mm. Second act as a journalist, trying to find ways to tell that story in a way that is a bit extractive. And then the third act is, and it's kind of echoed by the path that your character's on in Lola in the Mirror, your new novel, mm. is the possibility of redemption through art. To kind of cut my life up like that is really... It's, it's true. That's absolutely right. From zero to 20 was really miserable. You know, talk about mirrors. I was looking in the mirror at 15, you know, and just I used to just say three words and it was like, fuck them all. It was an incredibly negative kind of space. And then, and then for some reason, the world said, no, we're going to do something with those years. You know, we're going to give you a job as a journalist where you might be able to use that. And people will maybe even sniff that out of your articles. You know what I mean? You might be able to write in a style where people can smell those years in, in the stories. So then you get all of this healing, like from 20 to the age of 38. That's 18 years of just listening and listening and listening and, and learning more about the zero to 20 years through the stories of total strangers in living rooms across Australia. And then, mate, you so beautifully put it, third act, what am I going to do with all this now? And let's start looking in the mirror again and, and seeing what I see and what, what can I do with it? Okay, the only way you can, you can get your happy ending, the only way you can put some light on that is to go to the world of fiction because 
the real story of Boyce Willis Universe, Michael, is just, it's just, it's as complex as real life. In reality, people go on and life plateaus and then it dips and then it goes up really high and then it dips and plateaus and there's struggles and awkwardness and, and lots of sorrow. But um, where's that going to get anyone? Where does that get anyone if I was just to write some misery memoir about, you know, the Dalton boys making their way in battling working class Brizzy, you know, and it's like, well, let's take all that stuff and, and offer some magic to it. How would 15-year-old Trent have felt about some 40-something bloke telling him that it was it's all going to mean something in the end and love and kisses and deep hugs and it's going to be all right? Do you sometimes feel worried that if 15-year-old Trent rejects it because it's mm. too rosy, mm. you're not going to break through to it? Well, and it's a thing about me people hate. You know, people sort of, you know, oh, he's so optimistic and he's so sentimental and... And it is, I am, you know, I am. And and my wife's like, can you just turn it down a bit? Just turn it down. But first thing is that that's a massive defence mechanism. There's nothing but that. But here's the truth uh, of the power of optimism. So at 15, right, you know, the Dalton boys, we grow up in the 90s, right? We become young men. So so we can, we can rescue mum from the monster, right? This isn't my dad. This is this other fella she met after she did some time and... So one night, you know, my beautiful older brother, he's like, boys, we're going. We're going to get mum. And he knocks on the door and this fucking giant of a horrible man runs at my brother. And Joel gets down low, shoulder up, drives this guy across the yard and then four Dalton boys, you know, one Dalton brother per limb. And we pin that guy down and mum makes her escape. And we get the train home and... I burst into tears, right? I'm just crying my friggin' eyes out. And then my friggin' beautiful older brothers immediately start telling me jokes. They immediately start making me laugh. And I'm not crying anymore. And that night now becomes this sacred night in, in my heart. And that's cheesy as hell. Four boys on a train laughing to overcome their fear. And so I, I try and tell people, I promise you that that optimism comes from such darkness. There's a, line, there's a line in Lola. She's an artist and she sketches her traumas and she puts Tyrannosaurus heads on her father and or she puts a lion's head on her mom and she's trying to process this strange world she's in. And she makes this realisation you cannot physically draw light on a white piece of paper with a black ink pen. The only way to get the light is to enhance the darkness. The light comes from the darkness we place around it and... and that's the thing. That's all I'm trying to do with those books that end brightly and a little bit fairy tale like I'm just trying to say there is light and magic within the darkness. And and because that's true for a lot of young Australian kids, you know, I swear to God that's true. Like that they, they are seeing the magic. I think detractors aside, the authenticity of that, the genuineness of your voice, of your feeling of the of the stories that you're telling, that's what connects with readers. Like that's no. the, the, nothing. I reckon readers sniff out inauthenticity in a heartbeat. Ah, uh, so true. It's the thing I've loved about it. early readers of Lola. They're just like, nah, I believe it. Like I, be I believe it and thanks for showing me a world I didn't know that much about, you know, and that's the world of the street. But also thanks for reminding me that, there's light there for, for everyone as well. And nobody's invisible. Nobody's invisible in this country, you know? And it's, um, yeah, and, and I'm glad I could say something so earnest. And I wasn't trying to shove it down people's throats, but I was just trying to do that sort of same thing Dickens did, you know, same thing Steinbeck did, which is just 
please be conscious of the world outside your window, but please also give us a yarn, you know, and please also like build in some crime and some mystery and maybe even some love and and maybe we will go all the way with you on that story. And and that's what I love. But they won't go that far if they, they smell bullshit. On the question of authenticity and finding something that feels real, one of four boys, those key kind of teenage years with your dad, mm. would you have attempted what you've done in Lola in the Mirror and written about a 17-year-old girl before you had daughters? Or did you <laughs> need to have daughters yourself to feel like you could get into that head? That's a beautiful question, mate. It's funny that Eli Bell, the lead character of Boy Swallows Universe, was almost the exact same age my eldest daughter was when I wrote that book. Molly Hook, the lead character of All Our Streaming Skies, was about 14, around the age that eldest daughter was. And now my daughter is about to go into womanhood. Like, she's she's almost turning 17, the absolute age of the lead character of Lola in the Mirror. And I don't even know why. I just think, I'm, I think I did all that unconsciously. And this is the end of a bit of a youth trilogy. I think I'm done. Like, I think I'm done saying whatever I wanted to say about Australian youth, you know. I, I, had, I did feel like I had something useful or worthwhile to say about battling youth, you know, just frigging Australian youths up against it because I'm drawing from that 12-year-old I'm telling you about. But, but it's so funny. I don't even realise I'm doing these things. And then I realised, okay, how can I write about a 17-year-old girl? It's like, well, like I'm just trying to be a better dad by writing 400 pages of a novel about a 17-year-old girl. And sometimes I wonder, should I have just not done that book for eight months and just gone and talked to my daughters for eight months? You know, what's the better productive thing for them? And I approach writing the character in Lola um, the same way I approach my daughters. And I have this thing I say about you've got to start from the inside out on everything, right? You want to find out about Australia, you work from the inside out. And I mean go to the centre of the country and explore this place from the red dirt to the hills and then go to the coasts, then go to the big cities, you know. You want to explore a human being, a, a young woman of 17, start with her heart, go to her brain, understand that, and then listen to what she has to tell you. And I did exactly the same thing with the 17-year-old hero at the heart of Lola. Oh, you sneaky bugger. Look at your parenting on the page. What a, <laughs> what a party trick that <laughs> is. Parenting on the page. I could but have it's done with a, a bit of that. But it's also, like, it's for me too. It's me trying to remind myself, this is how you should be. I'm not always like that at all. Like, I'm a really flawed freaking parent. My wife will tell you. I'll totally. But, mate, I promise you I bring a lot of freaking heart and soul to that job, you know, and it's like, and that's what I'm bringing to those Trent books. I genuinely cannot imagine you not bringing heart and soul to anything <laughs> you do, like anything at all. People underestimate the value of enthusiasm. Like I say to journos, oh, just be enthusiastic. Be the person who gets the story and do that enthusiastically. But listen to your Beatles records enthusiastically. Listen, you know. Look at the bird in the sky enthusiastically. Greet your friends enthusiastically because you're fucking lucky to be here, man. You're lucky to have friends. It's like, you know. I love this because so much of the Australian psyche and the idea of who we are is wrapped up in this idea of she'll be right, laconic, laid back, maybe don't show your feelings, particularly Australian masculinity is about withholding. I'm very curious about, for you, how deliberately that's a reaction to the upbringing you had, a recognition of the stories you wanted to tell, is rejecting the idea of half measures. Oh, mate, huge. And look look where that got us, Aussie men. You know, where look where that got us. You know, one of the worst countries for domestic violence, you know, depressed men in rooms 
drinking instead of talking, writing, laughing, because we're just not willing to kind of emote. Mate, my worst regret, um, longest longest hug I ever gave my dad was when he was a cold, dead body. Went into his room up in this housing commission home on Broby Island and hugged this beautiful guy, man, you know, just like rested my head on his chest for like, you know, 40 seconds. And it was weird and a little bit creepy, but I fucking wept, man. It was so beautiful. It is that funny thing as you get older, you're kind of assessing the stuff that makes you who you are and then what imprint you want to leave on the world, whether it's through creating art the way you do or through raising kids or whatever it is. It's the... are you done for now? Like, are you stuck writing books and stories for the rest of your life because you love it so much? <laughs> or is there a version of you that's suddenly going to be, oh, no, I think I'm going to be someone who does massive hikes uh, across nature and that's what I want to be for the fourth act of my life? There's so much more I want to write, but there's nothing more I want to prove. But here's the thing, not to use a cheesy mountain climbing reference, but it's like I, I, I went to the top of the mountain and realised, like, the view isn't as good as the view of my wife and kids back in the hut, you know. And so that where I'm at now in fourth act is all about, honestly, like fixing things in relationships. I think I have been highly ambitious. Even if I try and shrug it off and make it look all cool and stuff, I've been very deliberate and dedicated and a little bit too much sometimes, you know. And, um, and that can come at a cost. And I just want to, Matt, you know who I want to be at 70? I want to be one of those people has a whole bunch of human beings under a pergola and you're cutting a pavlova and I start weeping because I'm surrounded by 16 people who really, really care about me. You know, like that's success, man. Trent Dalton, thank you for your time. Hey, Michael, it's been an honour. I've got one final thing I need to say. I freaking love you. (laughs) I'll take it. (laughs) Trent Dalton's latest book, Lola in the Mirror, is available at your local independent bookstore now. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Before we go, I wanted to let you know what I've been reading this week. Melbourne author Eleanor Elliot Thomas's debut novel, The Opposite of Success, is an excellent romp. Funny, chaotic and acutely observant, it follows its main character Laurie as she has one of the worst days of her life. It has hilarious insights into middle management, working in local government. Emily Bitto described it as, Think Fleabag as an Australian mum. Utterly endearing, I never wanted it to end. I felt the same way. And I've just devoured a beautiful book by Scottish poet Michael Peterson. It's his tribute, a love letter really, to his friend Scott Hutchison, lead singer in the band Frightened Rabbit, who took his own life a few years ago. Peterson writes not just about his lost friend, but also about male friendships throughout his life. And it's an absolutely stunning book. You can find both those books and all the others we've mentioned in the episode at your favourite independent bookstore. Or if you want to listen to them as audiobooks, you can head to the Read This Reading Room on Apple Books. That's at apple.co slash readthis. There's a link in our show notes. 
that's it for this week's show. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends about it and rate and review us. It helps a lot. Next week on Read This, I'm joined by award-winning author Charlotte Wood, who's here to discuss her new release, Stoneyard Devotional, and the question that is at the heart of all of her work. Well, writing is a is asking questions. I mean, when, when I write fiction, it's usually to do with some question that I have about how to be, you know. And clearly, an obsession of mine that I never kind of realised until it's done. It's like, oh, there it is again, this idea of how to live with other people that you haven't chosen to live with. Read This is produced and edited by Clara Ames. Mixing and original compositions by Zoltan Fetcher. Thanks for listening. See you next week.